Our passage this morning is here in Matthew 10, uh, verses 1 through 5, which gives us a good kind of launching place to look back over kind of what we've been through so far this year in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's pray before we read the Word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for Your Word. We pray that it would work in our midst this morning according to Your divine appointment, that You would tend to it, that You would use it to stir our souls to see the picture that is being painted here in the Gospel of Matthew 4. That new things would fire in our minds, that new things would stir in our hearts, things that are true, things that give glory to you, and that exalt you as our God. For that is our great end, that is our great purpose, to give glory to you, our God in heaven. So may it happen even over these next minutes as we gather together. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1, and then just through the first half of verse 5. This is the holy and errant word of God. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's easy, I think, for anyone to recognize as you're coming to this passage in the Gospel of Matthew that things are changing. Uh, If you look through chapters 1 through chapters 9, it is Jesus that is preaching, it's Jesus that is teaching, it's Jesus that is healing, it's Jesus that is doing miracles, it's Jesus that is casting out demons. But then we come here to chapter 10. In these first five verses, and Jesus is now calling disciples to Himself, and He's going to send them out to do His work, to preach, and to heal, and to cast out demons, to do kingdom work. Twelve men selected from all of the people on the face of the earth at this time. And these twelve disciples are but the beginning. They're a disparate group. They come from different walks of life. We know that four of them were fishermen. We don't know the occupation of many of them. Uh, We have on one end of the spectrum, we have Simon the Canaanite or Simon the Zealot who wants to overturn the Roman establishment and Roman government. And we have one on the other side of the spectrum, Matthew the tax collector, who is gathering funds for the Roman government. Uh, We have men that we know a great deal about, like Simon Peter and John. And then we have disciples that we know barely more than their names, Simon the Canaanite and Thaddeus. We have some that are in pairs, that are brothers. We have two pairs of brothers. 
and some that just kind of come out of nowhere. And yet, it is this little group, this band of brothers that will go and that will change the world. They have nothing to gain, no earthly wealth, no prestige, no power, no position. Nothing to speak of from a worldly sense that they gain. And most of them, all of them, except John, will lose their life, be martyred for the faith. And yet these 12 men, 11 of them, and then Judas Iscariot, of course, will be replaced. They go out and they spread the faith, the Christian faith, who Christ is and what Christ has done throughout the world. From these 12, it will spread into Judea and Sumeria and then spread through the Fertile Crescent and around the Mediterranean Sea, and it'll go into the lowlands of Europe, and go across the English Channel, and go to the British Isles, and it will cross the Atlantic to, to the Americas. It will hop all over across the Pacific Islands. It will go down to Australia and hit that penal colony. It will go into the mountains of Asia, and into the coastlands of Africa, and into the heart of that continent. Spread out across the world. It started here with, with these 12, this kind of disparate group. And we have to ask why. Why would a handful of Jewish men, Jews, be willing to sacrifice everything? As they grabbed a hold of Christ and as they grabbed a hold of this truth and began to go out and to proclaim it, they were abandoning their culture. They were abandoning their people. They were going to be turned aside. For the average Jew was not accepting this. And they would have been outcasts. They would have been separated from family. They were separated from their occupations. They would have been separated from their culture. They would have given up much. Few will do something like that. Except maybe for worldly wealth. Or maybe for power or for prestige. But they get none of that. So the question is why? Why would a group of Jewish men do this? Because they knew that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all that God had promised His people. They knew it. They could leave all because they now belonged to Him. He had called them, and He was sending them out, and He is the fulfillment of all. But as a Jew, you think, but what about the nation? What about the, the nation? What about Israel? This seems to be an abandonment. And Matthew, I think, has been painting a picture for us in these opening chapters. And what I want to do this morning is just kind of step back as we're taking a break from Matthew over these next weeks, over these summer months. I want to take a step back this morning because we've been in the trees. And it's easy in the midst of the trees not to see the forest, not to see what he has been doing over these first nine chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew has been painting a very clear scene for us. 
A picture that is often missed and often misunderstood. And here, this is a good launching point because notice that Jesus calls out 12 disciples. 12. And that should make your biblically informed minds fire. 12. Ah. Well, weren't there 12 tribes in the nation of Israel? And now Jesus is calling and sending out 12 disciples. Every Jew would have seen the significance of this. So what I want us to consider this morning is one question. Who is Jesus in relation to Israel? Who's Jesus in relation to Israel? Because Matthew and Christ are making a statement here by calling 12 disciples and sending out 12 disciples. There's a lot of confusion in evangelical circles about the relationship between Israel and the church. And there's a lot of confusion about the relationship between Israel and the church because there's a lot of confusion about the relationship between Israel and Jesus. When you understand the relationship between Israel and Jesus, the relationship between Israel and the church becomes crystal clear. And Matthew in his gospel has been trying to show us the relationship between Israel and Jesus from the opening verses. If you've ever wondered, does God have a, a special plan for the Jews? Are they saved differently from Christians? What about the promises that God made to Israel? What do you do with them? There's some Christians that are glued to their television set every night, uh, watching the evening news to see if Israel pops up on it. They're scouring the internet to find every article they can about the nation of Israel today because they think that maybe the things that are happening, these are harbingers of the fact that they, the end is coming. It's a lot of wasted energy. A lot of wasted energy. I say this. Let me qualify it here. Ethnic Jewish people, of which I believe I'm one, Long story, one, probably at least 25% Jewish, but ethnic Jewish people, and by correlation, the nation of Israel today is not equivalent to God's people. Now, I want to be clear, especially at a time like this in recognition of what happened this past week. To say that ethnic Jews are no longer God's people is not to say that Jews are to be hated or despised. No, they are to be loved like every Russian, like every Frenchman, like every Zulu, like every Sioux Indian. They are to be loved and they are to be one to Christ. But the Jews are not God's people. The nation of Israel holds no special place in God's redemptive plan here on out. None. Not in a unique way. Like all people, they are only saved if they believe in Christ. They stand on the same ground as every other person on the face of the earth. They are in need of a Savior. And there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. They must believe in Jesus. 
Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. One must believe in Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are barbarian or Scythian, whether they are slave or free, whether they are male or female. The only way to be saved is by believing in Christ. The only way. And that is why these disciples are sent out to proclaim Christ and to do the work of Christ. And notice that they are first sent out to the Jews. Why? Because for a Jew to be saved, they must believe on Christ. Now, why make this point from this text this morning? Because Matthew has been showing us throughout this book the relationship between Israel and Jesus. And so let me state it very simply. Jesus is the true Israel of God. Jesus is the true Israel of God. In the Bible, the the term Jew is often used in a neutral way to, to speak about a people or a nation, whereas the term Israel is used in a very specific way. It's used most often and almost exclusively to speak of God's covenant people, His elect, those that are in community with Him, that are in saving relationship with Him, His covenant people. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true Israel of God. And the church, by its union with Jesus, is made part of the true Israel of God. He calls 12 disciples. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's a marker in the text, an announcement that that a new age has begun. There were 12 tribes that came from Jacob, who was called Israel. And now there are 12 disciples that come from Jesus, who is the true Israel. And as we are united to Christ by faith, we become members of the true Israel of God. Because what was Israel? It was God's covenant people, His faithful, obedient priesthood of people, or that was what they were supposed to be. And that is what Christ is, and that is what we become by our union with Him. He is the true Israel of God. This is not, as some have accused, a kind of replacement theology. The church is not replacing Israel. That's not what's happening. Jesus is fulfilling what Israel was supposed to be and do. It's fulfillment theology. And Matthew has been going out of his way to show us this. So let's take a step back and let's look. Flip back to Matthew 1, if you will, with me. Matthew 1, the very first chapter in the New Testament, following the whole Old Testament, God's relationship with His covenant people. And now in Matthew chapter 1, it begins with a genealogy, doesn't it? The whole New Testament begins with this genealogy. Why? To answer this question. Who is Jesus? And what is His relationship to Israel? We have an entire Old Testament about Israel. And now we open up the New Testament and we have a genealogy. Why? Who is Jesus? What's His relationship to Israel? And notice how Matthew sets up the genealogy, the structure. Verse 1. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He structures the entire genealogy upon two men, upon Abraham and upon David. Why upon Abraham and upon David? Because of the covenants that God entered into with Abraham and with David. God entered into covenant with them, and these covenants are the very center of Israel's history and the very center of their faith, which are now finding their fulfillment in Jesus. So you think back, and you think about the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12 when God, er, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. He says that from him shall come forth a seed that shall be a blessing to all the nations. He says, look, Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all of the nations. And so Matthew begins with Abraham and ties Jesus' birth to Abraham so that he can tell us that the fulfillment has come. Here's the promised blessing. The offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How does the gospel of Matthew end? It ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you to the very end of the age. He is the blessing to the nations. He is and does everything that Israel was commanded to be and do. Jesus is here laying claim to being Abraham's true descendant, the one and as the true descendant of Abraham, what Abraham's offspring was supposed to be, Jesus is. And so he is marked as the true Israel of God, the faithful, faith-filled, obedient servant of God. He's the embodiment of God's people. Where the nation failed, Jesus remained faithful. Matthew makes that point in the genealogy, doesn't he? By ending the next section of the genealogical tree in verse 11, he he cites the deportation to Babylon. That is, the nation disobeyed, and so it had to be disciplined. They were supposed to be faithful and faith-filled and supposed to follow after God, but they had been unfaithful, whereas Jesus was always faithful. What the nation was supposed to be and do, He was and He did. He is the true Israel of God. You then take the second foundational figure upon whom the entire genealogy is structured is David. Why? Because of the covenant that God entered into with David in 2 Samuel 7. Where he said to David that one of his sons shall sit upon the throne forever. And rule forever. And that king was to represent Israel. To be the embodiment again of the people of God. But you look through this genealogy and you see over and over, king after king after king is disobedient to God. Does not honor God as He is meant to be honored. Do not live for God as they were meant to live for God. Do not seek God as they were supposed to seek God. Do not bless the people as they were meant to bless the people. But Jesus is the faithful king. He's the descendant from David, the son of Abraham, and the son of David, the true Israel of God. Matthew's genealogy is announcing to us that a new 
age has dawned. It's dawned. It's come. In Jesus, all the promises are realized. And Matthew is going to continue to show this throughout the book, that Jesus is the true Israel. So, if we just look at the opening chapters, we find after the genealogy of chapter 1, what do we find in chapter 2? We have Jesus' birth story. And it's told in a way that is meant to cause you to recall Moses' story. That's what it's doing. And so, we have Abraham, and we have David, and we have Moses. This is like the Mount Rushmore of, of Israel's history. These are the three. If you want to say who defines Israel's history, it would be these three. And so in chapter 2, we have Jesus' story told to remind us of Moses' story. Moses' life, when he was born, was threatened with death by the decree of a ruler. And so what happened? Jesus' life was threatened with death by the decree of a ruler. Moses is protected by God as an infant so that the exodus can occur. So Jesus is protected by God as an infant so the greater exodus can occur. As Moses led the people out of Egypt, so Jesus comes out of Egypt, Matthew says in chapter 2. And some have struggled to understand this. How could Matthew cite Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 2.15? Doesn't that seem odd? He's quoting Hosea saying, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a text about the Exodus. How are you applying that to Jesus? Well, because Jesus is leading a second greater Exodus, even greater than Moses. He embodies Israel as the true Israel of God. He emerges out of Egypt. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and here we see the Mosaic covenant. It's all fulfilled in Him. He is the true Israel of God. And then we have Matthew chapter 3. If you look there, we have John the Baptist preaching and telling the wayward Jews in verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You aren't Israel by blood, he's saying. And then what immediately happens? Jesus' baptism. Israel has turned its back as a nation upon God. It's not functioning as his obedient son as it was meant to. They, they, that is what Israel was to be, an obedient son. When God puts words in Moses' mouth before Pharaoh, he tells him to say to Pharaoh, when he's trying to get his people released from Egypt, he tells them to say this to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. My son was meant to serve me. They didn't. They rebelled time and time again. So what do we have at the end of chapter 3? We have Jesus being baptized, and what do we hear from the heavens? The Father's voice, who says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the true Israel of God. 
And then we turn to Matthew 4 as Jesus is led into the wilderness. Why? Well, what occurred after Israel left Egypt? It went into the wilderness. After it passed through the waters of the Red Sea, it went into the wilderness. Now, Jesus emerges from the waters of baptism, and he's immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And as the nation of Israel was in the wilderness, and there they were tested, so he is tested. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, so he is in the wilderness for 40 days. They were in need of food and hungry and longing for the leeks of Egypt, and God will provide manna from the heavens for them. And here we have Jesus fasting and hungry, but given no relief, and yet Israel sinned and rebelled against God, and Jesus remained faithful. He's the true Israel of God. He's the obedient son, the son of Abraham and the son of David. We then begin chapter 5, and what are we told? He went up on the mountain and began to teach. Why? Moses went up on the mountain. Or as Moses came down and declared the word of the Lord, Jesus stands upon the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and he proclaims with authority his own word. For two chapters. For those struggling at this point, as some Jews would have done, Saying, well, this feels like replacement theology. Feels like Jesus is taking the place of Israel and throwing Israel to the side. In the midst of that deliverance of the word in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. It was all pointing to him. All to be realized in Him. Him to fulfill it all. As it's written in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Everything, everything is fulfilled in Him. And after the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, we enter chapters 8 to 9, which are about Jesus doing healing and miracles. Why? Signs that Jesus is who He says He is, that the kingdom has come, that fulfillment is here, that sin and its effects are being turned back because the healing, restoring, redeeming touch of God has come into the world in the person of His Son. It is all confirmation that nothing more is needed. Nothing more is to be sought after. He is who He says He is. And you can see that because He does what He does. And so that brings us to chapter 10. With Jesus choosing 12 disciples and sending them out. As Jacob, remember his name was Israel, had 12 sons, and that began the nation. So Jesus, the true Israel of God, has 12 disciples, and he begins the church. It is a proclamation on Jesus' behalf that the new Israel has come. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. God will tell them in Exodus 19, verse 6, He 
It was said that he brought them out to make them a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Peter says this to the Christian in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. All rich terms exclusively used of Israel in the Old Testament, but now they are applied to Christians. Why? Because Jesus is the true Israel of God and we by faith are united to Him. What's the relationship between Israel and Jesus? He's its fulfillment. Where Old Testament Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. He's the true Israel of God. Our second point, we said he calls the disciples to send them. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that when Jesus called the disciples to himself, he called them for two reasons. He called them that, quote, they might be with him. And then secondly, that he, quote, might send them out to preach. He calls them to himself that they might be with him, that they might be in communion with him, that they might be united to him, that they might know all of his blessings. But it isn't just there that the disciples are kept. It's not just there that they are to remain, but rather they are brought in so that they might be sent out. They are called to be sent. And so it is true of every disciple. We were chosen, Paul says in Ephesians 1, predestined to the praise of His glorious grace. And that passage in 1 Peter where Peter says that Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, he follows it by saying that. That denotes purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You were called. You were made a royal priesthood. You were made a holy nation. You were made His people. That, that you may proclaim the excellencies of His name. There's purpose. There's purpose. It shouldn't surprise us. When Jesus calls his first disciples in Matthew 4, what does he say? He says, I call you to make you fishers of men. He calls to send. And what are the last words that he says to these disciples in Matthew 8? He says, go therefore and make disciples. His first thing he does is he calls them to himself and he sends them out. The last thing that he says to him before he ascends to heaven is go. And make disciples. To proclaim his excellencies. The son of Abraham. The son of David. This true Israel of God. Three quick applications. First. Christ should be the Christian's greatest passion. The disciples were sent out to do his work. And to proclaim his name. Because he's worthy. And there's something else that we are noted for speaking more about than Christ. And there's something else that people first think about with regards to us before they think Christ, when they think about us. There's a problem. We were called to be sent to proclaim. I think even some of these errant views 
people become very passionate about some loci of theology, some thing. Maybe it's eschatology, the end times, and what it shall be like, or maybe it is the Sabbath day, or maybe it is the law, or maybe it is the concept of grace, or maybe it is love, or whatever it may be, all, all good things. But it's Christ that we are to be most passionate about. And those things only have purpose. They only have meaning. They only make sense in relation to Christ. We've been called to Christ. We've been sent out by Christ. Our lives are to be consumed with Christ. For me to live is Christ, Paul said. It's He that is to be our singular passion. Second, stop looking for something else. Stop it. There's nothing else. He's the fulfillment. There's nothing left. He's the fulfillment. There's not something more that's needed. He's the fulfillment. There's not some promise that is unrealized. He's the fulfillment. There's not something that is yet to be promised. He's the fulfillment. Now, all of it will be consummated when He returns, but it's consummated in Him. Everything is found in Him. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. He is. So stop looking for other things. And lastly, make Him known. This is true. If he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God, if not even a Jew can be saved apart from faith in Christ, then they must hear. And people must hear. They must hear so that they can believe. But they can't hear unless there are those that are proclaiming. So would you proclaim His excellencies? He has brought you out of darkness, brought you into light to proclaim His excellencies. As one who is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Ah, oh, He is worth it. And He is worthy of our worship and all of our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ we have all things. We need not seek after other avenues. We don't have to go traipsing up other paths. We don't have to stir our imaginations. We don't have to get creative. We simply have to seize upon Christ. And in Him we have all things, have all fulfillment, have all of Your promises. Oh, help us to cling closer to our Savior. 
us not to have minds that wander and hearts that go astray. Help us to delight more in the son of Abraham, the son of David, this true Israel of God. What a gift we have been given in our Savior. It is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.